on work as a society, all of us. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up. That no people on earth are so fearless or daring or determined. The world is not driven by greed. It's driven by envy. This is the most macro environment as I've ever seen. Undercapitalized, the wrong people, bad market conditions. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hey everybody, welcome to the TEL podcast where we talk to, educate, and lead America's small business owners, managers, and anybody else willing to listen into the 21st century of business. I'm Taylor Lassiter. I'm coming to you now from Washington State. I got a couple of gentlemen here. One of them is a friend of mine who I served with in the Marine Corps. Um, and the other one I just met like 20 minutes ago. Um, they're both farmers, you know, born and bred up here in Washington, right? Is that right, Dallas? That is correct, yes. Okay, Eastern, so. Eastern Washington. I told you before a long time ago that I was wanting to get some farmers who can talk about the agricultural industry on the podcast. And so that's what we're doing here today. Um, again, thank you for all the support for the podcast. We're over 600 plays on just 12 episodes now. So we're moving up in the world, but still rookie numbers. We got to boost those numbers up. Um, so we're just going to get into it. Uh, we'll start with Kyle. Just tell me who you are, where you come from, a little bit about yourself, and then we'll go on to Dallas here. Yeah, um, Kyle Porter. I was born and raised here and in a small town, eastern Washington. My my family farms around here. Um, I actually no longer work on the on the farm. I'm, I left the the family farm a couple years ago and and took another uh, position. Still, I still still work in the ag industry though, and um, it's definitely a, a passion of mine. And yeah, just kind of your average Joe. What do you What do you do now? So I am a, my official title would be field represent field representative field rep. Um, so I work for a a uh, vegetable processor and in, in in I'm out in the field managing and and uh, overseeing a lot of sweet corn acres and, and it's about what twenty thousand acres you said roughly it, right now. It varies from year to year. This year we're we're sitting. Yeah, a little under 20,000 acres. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, we'll get into more of that in a little bit. Dallas, what about you? Yeah, my name is Dallas Hintz, born and raised as well, Eastern Washington, little city called Ephrata. Uh, grew up on the farm. My grandfather was a farmer. He migrated from Germany at, as a young child, moved to North Dakota, froze out as a, as a sugar beet farmer and moved to Oregon in the Treasure Valley. Then when Central Washington got the Columbia Basin Irrigation Project developed, he moved up here to farm with irrigation. That's awesome, that's really cool. I yep. like that story. Kyle, you have a similar background like with your family, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, both, I mean, my, my dad's side of the family, I believe they were, um, some of the first people to, to, I mean, they were they were here in in this part of the state before we had irrigation, and um, were some of the first homesteaders um, to to be here. My my mom's side, same sort of deal. I think they came over a little later. They uh, came from Idaho, and um, 
and started farming here. And so I'm kind of the, I guess I'd be the fourth generation on that side to, to um, yeah, be in the, in the ag industry. And um, yeah, even though I'm not on the, the family farm um, right now, you know, it's still something that that's, uh, could be in my future. We'll see. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys both definitely have a ton of experience. I mean, there's not much else going on out here. This is your guys' life. I mean, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's uh, this whole side of the state really revolves around. Right. Totally different than Seattle. Like, this is not big city. I mean, the bigger cities, Spokane, not too far from here. But yeah, I mean, it kind of looks like you guys been to Kansas. (laughs) <laughs> it's just no. wide open fields. That's what it's kind of like. Yeah, it's. We'll do a little. We'll do a little driving around tomorrow and show you a little more. It's pretty. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty diverse country out here. It's uh, for guys like us who enjoy the outdoors and hunting and fishing. It's yeah. It's a good place to be. It's, so it's actually Taylor. I think we get seven inches of rain a year. That's does that sound right, Kyle? Yeah. That, that's probably not too far off. Yeah, so we are the desert, and it's a de- desert landscape. And then you got fields of green from the irrigation, and it's it's a really weird concept. But you get just the desert heat, desert dry heat, and then um, you get the warm summers, obviously. But you have the irrigation to grow the crops, and everyone thinks of Washington as Seattle, the rainy, you know, cloudy state, but. Eastern Washington is a is really a whole nother state. So yeah, and Kyle was kind of breaking it down for me, but the amount of food that is produced in Washington is pretty crazy. Like apples, yeah, like basically, um, yeah. Washington um, is well, this county, Grant County itself, is I don't know the exact stats, um, you know, off the top of my head, but. Uh, is I believe the number one potato producing county in in the nation, and uh, yeah, we produce mass amounts of potatoes, mass amounts of apples, and um, yeah, definitely known for potato production and and apple production. Yeah, specifically. Yeah, it was really cool driving around today and learning about um, the different types of irrigation and stuff, and the different parts. There's a lot of rolling hills and. <clears throat> And then there's areas where like you don't get as much rain or you don't get natural water that comes, so you got to pipe it in. Um, and it was really cool to see that because you know you drive through these large, you know, all these acres of. Yeah. To normal people, it's just like, well, that's just plants, but it's all the food for the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I come from California, so like I'm I'm kind of used to seeing large fields of, of uh, all different kinds of produce and stuff, but. Um, it's it's it is kind of different being here in Washington because it's not as flat. Like it's rolling hills, seeing all that. It's it's different. Even in Texas, it's not quite like that. It's a little different. Yeah, yeah. No, I I haven't spent much uh, much time in you know in other parts of the the country besides some of the areas I I was stationed. But um, well, I'm yeah, glad you I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you next what. <laughs> What drove you to serve in the Marine Corps? Oh man, um, it's a great question. <laughs> Honestly, you know, there's some um, waltzed into a recruiter's yeah. office on accident. 
No, I don't know. Um, I guess I I wasn't one of those people that uh, you know some some people grow up knowing that's what they're going to do. That that wasn't necessarily me. I mean, I grew up like being very intrigued by by um, military, and I mean, we used to run around and our you know my mom would take us down to the army surplus store and we'd get uh the camouflage and run around and and uh you know play play uh war and but it growing up it you know at, at once i got into my high school years i guess i'd say that i never i never really gave much thought until after i graduated i i was a decent athlete in high school and um what sports did you play well, I grew up grew up playing everything. I mean, anything that was in season, I, I was playing. But uh, as I got into high school, I pretty much focused on football. That was... Yeah. Um, For listeners out there, Kyle is a giant corn-fed dude. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah football was my sport. Um, yeah, after high school, I honestly, my grades were garbage. I... I didn't apply myself in high school. If it wasn't for my angel of a mother, I, I wouldn't have graduated. <laughs> um, there was my senior year. Um, I think I was ineligible for first couple games, and I my football coach would make me come in every morning like an hour before school and and uh, work with tutors. And it wasn't because I was a you know an idiot. I just I didn't apply myself. I didn't care. And um, yeah, after graduation, I I didn't have anything to do. I couldn't. Uh, my parents weren't going to pay for me to go to school, and that was the probably the best decision ever because I, you know, I would have probably ended up just dropping out of college. Um, so I had quite a few buddies actually. Um, a couple of my best friends in high school they ended up going into the Navy, and um, they you know, convinced me to do the same thing. And um, they were like, oh, yeah, we'll all go to, you know, get stationed in Hawaii together and party every <laughs> night. It'll just, this is it'll, what the recruiter told me. Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll be just like, uh, just like it is now, you know. And so I was like, heck, yeah, you know, I'm going to go join the Navy with my, my other two buddies and we'll all get stationed together and it'll... Uh, but I, yeah, reality check, and I realized that wasn't um, going to happen. So I actually had had uh, you know gone and and signed paperwork with the Navy to uh, go into the Navy as a as a um, a CB, um, a construction part of the. I could the, see you doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyways, long story short, I, I after a while I realized that all that um, stuff that we thought was going to happen after a couple of buddies shipping off to boot camp and um, that that wasn't reality and and uh, thought I would fit better in the Marine Corps <laughs> and so luckily my recruiter the Navy recruiter was really cool and um, they were able to kind of transfer paperwork over and within a week I was. Um, yeah, all ready to go to Marine Corps boot camp. So even like with all the the war and everything that was going on, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of people that come from this area that probably joined the Marine Corps, right? 
Like, did you oh know yeah, there was. I had um, a couple friends that I get. I wouldn't say we were we were um, real close friends in high school, but there there are some classmates of mine that that yeah. went to the Marine Corps. Definitely. So it just so forward. happened that a couple of my best friends went to the Navy and oh yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, conned me into joining. But I <laughs> I uh, came to my. Senses. They would have made good recruiters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so kind of fast forward to when you and I met. We were stationed in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, together. Yep. And then um, you deployed to Afghanistan. Yep. You talk a little bit about just that experience deploying, going from farming to now you're. <laughs> oh man, um, yeah. I mean, I was was absolutely stoked. It was for me. It was. Uh, a long time. I mean, that's why why guys go in the Marine Corps because they want to deploy and they want to want to get in the fight. Um, so actually, I think both you and I volunteered for for our deployment. Yeah, I remember them walking into the cage and being like, "All right, who wants to go to Afghanistan?" Because they would come in and ask, "Like, who wants to deploy?" Yeah. And I remember it's like where's a couple, that? Where's yeah, that a couple of dudes <laughs> raised their hand and they didn't ask like where. Yeah. And they're like, "You're going to." Okinawa, Japan or something. And they're like, oh, dang it. Yeah. And then they came in one day and they're like, who wants to deploy? And we were like, where? Yeah, where? Where? Exactly. And they were like, Afghanistan. And like all of our hands shot up. Yeah. But like three, there's like three dudes that didn't, which blew our minds. We were yeah. like, what? Yeah. No, Why would you join the Marine Corps and not want to deploy? That's what's so cool about the Marine Corps is it's just, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a few guys out there that, that aren't, but for the most part, I mean, the Marine Corps is just a uh, bunch of hard chargers mm-hmm. ready to go get some. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, so that that came up. I remember that day when they came in and and uh, asked who wanted to, to volunteer to go to Afghanistan, and um, hands were up. And, and luckily, I, I mean, I don't think uh, everyone who volunteered, I mean, we had probably more than enough volunteers, and not everyone was at least select for that, you know, selected for that deployment in particular. But there was a few different units that that needed some extra bodies and uh, yeah. And so yeah, we uh, Taylor and I both we were on um, uh, Ford Observer teams or Scout teams, Scout Scout Observer teams, which they basically you know we were radio operators, so we handled the radio side of or the communication side for the Ford Observers who basically talk to aircraft or they talk to artillery units or mortar mortar squads to to get um you know fire support for whatever that mission is but being in that small team the radio operators actually learn fo's job too because if the fo goes down who else is there to do the job so yeah kind of well-rounded it was yeah it was pretty cool we were pretty lucky to uh with our with our MOSs, I mean, I went in open contract, and at that time, there were so many people going into the, into the. I, I'm sure just the, um, the uh, well, not just the Marine Corps, but you know everything. But specifically, Marine Corps was getting just filled up, and there was uh, it was really actually pretty tough to get in. So, I ended up if I wanted to ship anytime soon, which honestly for me, I just wanted to to uh, get out of town for a while and yeah. go experience something else. So. Honestly, at that point in my life when I joined, I really didn't care. I just wanted to mm-hmm. to uh, get out and go see the world. Um, so you you deployed to Afghanistan in two thousand was it two thousand twelve? 
Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, what were your roles there? Was it leadership roles and stuff like that, or were you just kind of? Well, so the way we worked as a as a fire support team, I guess. Yeah, that would be the probably a fist fist team would be the acronym mm-hmm. F I S F capital F lowercase I capital S T <laughs> um, fire support team. It's uh, typically made up of your uh, your RO, your your radio operator. Your you have usually a a, um, a corporal or lance corporal forward observer. Then you have um, a lieutenant who's a lot of times uh, uh, JTAC qualified. JTAC's just a fancier version of a FO. You have a lot more yeah. more say so joint. Tactical air controller, I yeah. think that stands for. Um, and then you have a a for a fac, a forward air controller, and um, who's usually a a captain, um, mm-hmm. someone who's an an actual pilot, uh, fighter pilot. Yeah, and in our case, it they would do a few tours where they're actually flying, and then they would do another tour that's kind of like a a break, but they're on the ground and 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 more command, almost like a like a um, Gosh, my brain. What do you? The uh, the like air control towers at airports and stuff. They do a lot of the deconfliction in the airspace of all the, the aircraft and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um. So there's a lot of a lot of moving parts and stuff. But being on the you're you're on the ground out in the patrols working with everybody. But you have the radio operator position, and then you also have to understand all of the forward observer stuff. Yeah, everybody's. I mean, it's a small team, right? You're operating in a in a small team, um, which which is always cool. You get very close with your with your teammates and um, and uh, your fellow service members. And um, yeah, but no, everyone's you know, you, everyone's kind of got to know everybody's job. I mean, it's important that uh, that the uh, radio operator is uh, you know knows how to call in fire support and talk to aircraft and talk, talk to artillery. And that, I mean, that's really what you're yeah. doing a lot of the time. And, um, so yeah. no, everyone you're working as a team and then it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of these guys, you know, we, we train them up on, on the radios. Cause I mean, if, mm-hmm. yeah, if anyone, if radio operator goes down, you know, these, you know, someone's got to know how to, to, to operate the radio and, and get, get uh, communication established. Yeah. So there's low, the point I'm trying to make is how different, that is from what you grew up doing. Yeah, no, de- oh yeah, and for everybody. I mean, yeah. right? No one grows up uh, freaking calling in JDAMs. Yeah, right? we were talking <laughs> about it in the car on the way here. Like, I was 19 years old whenever I deployed. I didn't even turn 20 until after we got back from our deployment. Yeah. And that's the majority of people that serve is 20 and younger yeah. and immense amount of responsibility and stuff. And it kind of makes you a man really quick. Yeah. Did you feel out of your depth a little bit when you were over there? Um, what do you mean? Like not qualified to do what you were doing, but like given oh, this massive responsibility. Dude, well, yeah, we were, we were talking about it on the way over here. I mean, I was, yeah, I mean, you got to grow up quick because you you go out on a on an operation or uh, a patrol or anything as, you know, someone in, in our position. And um, it's, I mean, I put a lot of pressure on myself because I knew that if, if something went down and if I couldn't do my job, I mean, that's, you know, potentially, um, somebody's life. So, 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I, I, uh, you know, I was always, you know, not second guessing myself, but just, uh, yeah, I, I understood the, uh, the severity of, of things. And, um, so that, uh, did you ever, were you, I mean, eventually you got out of the Marine Corps, you did your enlistment, you got out a little bit early, but was it, did you have plans after you had served to stay in longer or did something happen that basically forced your hand where you're like, okay, I'm ready to go back home? Um, you know, I, I joined in, I knew that, that it wasn't something that I'd probably, uh, make a career out of. I guess I always knew that, uh, I mean, I love, I love home. I love, love where I live. Um, and I always wanted to come back here and, um, knew I was, you know, going to do whether it was always plan on coming back to the farm, I suppose, come back and work mm-hmm. on the family farm and, um, or just something in ag in general. That's, uh, honestly, I, you know, I love to, uh, to hunt and fish and, and do those things. And I mean, really when you're in the military, especially as a, a lifer, I mean, you sacrifice so much. So, I mean, right. props to, to everyone out there who's, um, who's made a career out of the military cause it's no mm-hmm. easy task. Um, I knew that probably wasn't going to be for me. So I, yeah, I never really planned on staying in long term. I, um, do my four and, and, uh, get out, see the world, get away from, from a uh, small town, Eastern Washington. I'd never really, um, left home. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, for me, it was kind of a similar thing. Although I grew up wanting to join the Marine Corps, but that was a little bit of a little naive of understanding what the military really was. I saw it from like movies and yeah, you know how every young boy does, you see it and you're like, oh, that's cool. You get to go shoot guns and do this stuff, but you don't see all the BS that comes with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for, it was interesting because I always wanted to get away. I grew up in the desert and I'm like, I want to go where it rains and where there's green and all this stuff. And then we go to North Carolina and I'm like, I really don't like humid weather. Yeah. <laughs> I really hate bugs. Like, yeah. <laughs> And so it kind of, it gave me some perspective on what I, what I had back, back home. You yeah, know, for like sure. you kind of envy some of the people that stay home yeah. that, that don't join because you're like, man, you guys have no idea what you're, what yeah. you have. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? No, you grow up, you grow up in a hurry. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, we'll switch over to Dallas. Give us a little bit of a synopsis of where you come from and. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Taylor. Uh, well, I think I introduced myself mm-hmm. earlier, but um, yeah, I grew up on the farm. It's all I ever knew. I, for some reason, chose the sport of wrestling to pursue through my middle school, high school years. Ended up being pretty good. It was easy for my parents to work with me and really... I guess give me the opportunity, opportunity and um, time of day to to make it to that kind of that next level, being that it was a, a winter sport and we were farmers. Um, so I I ended up going to the University of Wyoming and wrestling out there for for five years. Wow! Did uh, that was on a scholarship and stuff? Yeah, I got a little scholarship. Uh, I wasn't a five star recruit or anything, but. Um, 
I put my time in and made great friends and learned a lot. Sport keeps you humble. Um, I enjoy every meal I eat to this day just because I've oh, yeah. cut weight so much my whole life. But um, great learning experience, great friends, and uh, great time. But but moving away, I to the to to Wyoming. Laramie, Wyoming is where the university is. Uh, just as Kyle did, I really grew an appreciation for the area we live here. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can see the beauty in it. Now that I'm a little older and I have a little bit of experience, I'm like, you know, like there's parts of the city, the luxuries of, the, of a city or whatever that you kind of, you're like, okay, yeah, I really like this. Nice, nice restaurants everywhere, and like, there's a, maybe a good nightlife and stuff, but there's like a physical stress relief when you get out into just rural America. There's something about it that's just, I could see where that pulls you back. Yeah, Wyoming is gorgeous, don't get me wrong, but you know, seeing my friends pursue their degrees and I was, I got an ag business degree. Um, I mean, I didn't learn much. I, I'm not a scholar. I really enjoyed the, the trades classes, you know, spent a lot of time welding and I think we, I think we did, we've raised fish one semester and I don't know. I just like the hands-on stuff. Um, but seeing my, my friends pursue their careers, I, I just understood, I guess, the opportunity I had being raised on the farm and my dad being a farm owner that I could come back and, and have a, a great lifestyle and, yeah. and make a little money doing it. Yeah. So... Obviously, you picked agricultural business as your degree to go for. So you basically already knew that you would eventually probably be getting back in into that. Would you? Did you think of it being going back to the family farm, or like you wanted to start your own? Well, ironically, my dad uh, he introduced me to a banker when I was ten years old um, because he said you're gonna you're gonna build your own sweat equity on yeah, on your bank account. And that was his way of doing it. So I, I mean, I, they, they didn't support me through any of my college. I had built up, you know, um, money through my younger years to be able to pay for college and, and learn disciplines from the, the business side and seeing the numbers and, and putting that sweat equity in where you get back what you put in and really caring about what you're doing and your job. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different ball game than just being the grunt in the field because as much as you might want to be the dude in the field up there with the boys, maybe. Like well, I, I was. Yeah. I was the slave labor. I mean, you know, I, I put the sweat equity in. Slave and, labor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that's a term I shouldn't use, but it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I was a physical work. My dad wanted me to experience that. That's how yeah. he grew up. And, and it makes you... Like I said, I mean, it gives you the appreciation for what you do and it makes you pay attention to details. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, not trying to compare what I do now to what you're doing, but I have a lot of business venture ideas outside of podcasting. But I feel like instead of picking one and then learning that one thing for 30 years, I can't do that with every industry. But I can talk to people that are in every industry and get an idea of what they're going through because my, my goal ultimately is to protect the small business world. I, I put agriculture into that as well because that's most 
small small businesses or farming, um, but protect it from a larger level, which I see like we were talking about, Kyle and I were talking about it earlier today, how it's like corporate farming and like it's usually about the money and they forget the people that do the job and it gets very like numbers on a piece of paper and you just forget the people. But like in every small business, that's where the, that's where it matters. Like that's where the loyalty comes from. You know, people don't feel so used, you know? Well, and that's, that's the atmosphere we've absolutely tried to create on our farm. We care about our people. Like, I mean, we wouldn't be anything without our employees. Yeah. I think we got my dad, I'm, I'm referencing my dad, but I've got my own independent entity. I'm doing my own farming, but I, me and my dad work in conjunction and obviously communicate and he mentors me a lot and I, you know, I, we work together, but he's got 15 full-time employees and I've just seen growing up myself, being an employee, um, how, how important it is to them, um, mostly Hispanic men, um, because they will work, honest to God. Um, it's really hard to find a white man in today's world that wants to put time in and, and get a little sweaty out in the field yeah, and get dirty. That's a little hard truth that I think a lot of people need to hear. Yeah. You know, like that's a, that's a problem. I mean, we, we say, you know, white versus brown, but you know, that's like a humanity issue. Like what is wrong with us that we don't want to work anymore? Yeah, I don't know. But the Hispanic culture, they, they understand that still. Yeah. And so we've just done our best to facilitate the best atmosphere we can for them. And we truly love them and um, they love us and it's a great relationship. We, um, I think that the most important thing is to have a good communicator being the manager we have is uh, bilingual and that, that makes a huge difference, obviously. Yeah. But that's that's great to hear, though. I bet it probably sucked when he was telling you, "Go work, go do that, go get out there." But he knew he was like, "I'm prepping him to. He's going to take over." Well, yeah. I mean, there's guys still on the farm today, employees that they're the ones that taught me how to plow, how to drive truck when right. I was like, you know, eight, ten years old. Yeah. So being that I've they've saw me grow up on the farm, I guess, and put in that that grunt work, then it gives them a better appreciation yeah. to respect. Yeah, respect right. me. Yeah, it's so valuable. A lot of the, uh, that kind of leads into a leadership thing, but a lot of my knowledge of what bad leadership or what good leadership is, is by being under bad leadership. It's like when you're the guy at the bottom, you know what works and what doesn't how to talk to different people from different backgrounds and stuff and how to ultimately manage this whole thing. Um, and I think that that's awesome that your dad actually made you do that, even though it probably sucked. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm going to do to my kids too. Yeah, if I have boys. exactly. Yeah. So, so I think, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, so you got back from, from college. Did you, how long were you working again for your, your dad's, so I've, I've always co-mingled the two. Okay. Um, I could, I mean, equipment these days is so expensive. I've always paid my dad a custom rate to come do the farming with his men and machinery. I have the crop contract. Like I stated earlier, I think I was 10 years old. My dad co-signed for me on a couple acres with the banker and I got a little loan and I was able to slowly build from there. But I learned those values 
that um, only come with experience, I think, of being a business owner. Um, but basically by the time I went to college, you know, I had enough funds to pay myself through whatever I wasn't on scholarship for. And then I would come home every summer and run irrigation for my father. So I would work both by the hour, but also have my own little farm gig going too. Yeah, that's cool. And that's what we're on right now. We're at your, your house and are we surrounded by your, your yes. farm right now? Yes, these are actually my father's fields. I bought a little eight eight acre okay. piece here. Gotcha. Okay. So, what is specifically like? What do you you guys grow? Well, we grow a variety of crops. I think potatoes, as Kyle stated earlier, um, is huge here in Grant County, and that's what my father built the farm on. Um, but we grow potatoes, green peas, sweet corn, processor contracts, fresh vegetable stuff, which is what Kyle works for as a, a vegetable processor. We got wheat, um, we got hay, we got some beans, and I a lot of field corn actually. So is there any any one that you kind of despise but it's like necessary? <laughs> well, potatoes are by far the biggest risk. They take the the most money to farm per acre. Um and and I've learned over the years that, I mean, farming is expensive. It makes going to Vegas seem cheap. It really does. Yeah, your margins are... Margins can be razor thin, but you are, you are all in every year yeah. trying to get it. Is, uh, I mean, what does that look like when <clears throat> some bad weather comes in? Well, fortunately, we're pretty weathered, I guess. What would the word be? We're consistent with our weather here, I should say. You know, we don't have the hailstorms like you see in the Midwest that come in and wipe a crop out. We don't got the flash floods. We're just a consistent dry heat with seven inches of rain a year. So it's not, I think maybe the, the worst I've seen would be a bad windstorm that is, can come in and blow like a standing cornfield over. Besides that, I mean, that's about it. But you can, with a combine, if your crops mature, you can still go harvest it. Oh, okay. Pick it up. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, Kyle and I were driving through and he was saying, we were talking a little bit about like the science behind the crops and rotation. And um, I think some of the some of the stuff that you guys grow is good to put nitrogen back into the soil. And uh, so what what does that look like? I'm, I'm, I don't know if you want to do this, but go from like barren ground to planting and the whole thing all the way up to harvest, what does that look like? Yeah, fertility is huge, obviously, in any crop. You got your legumes, um, your green peas, your hay, they're legumes. So they produce their own nitrogen, which is huge in an economy like today where nitrogen is just through the roof price-wise. Right. Um, so that's an advantage to be growing a legume, legume crop. Beans are also a legume. Um, I guess we're, so we, my dad grew the farm. Basically my dad, his rule is this, market produce deliver in that order. And that's how he's grown the farm. He found years ago, he tried organic farming. I think he heard Martha Stewart talking about it on the radio. He looked into it. He's like, well, maybe, maybe this is going to be my niche market where I can make a few extra bucks and, and grow the farm for my family. 
my grandfather did not give him any ground. He, until he passed away, he got a quarter section, um, which around here is not much at all. I think a quarter section is just 160 acres. That's what your standard circle is. A circle is an irrigation pivot that walks around from a center pivot location and extends out an eighth of a mile, walks around and irrigates. That's um, the standard length and it's four quarter sections in a section obviously, but most homesteaders like Kyle's parents were, or Kyle's grandpa, uh, they get a quarter section. And that's how it was back in the olden days. Um, so organic farming, I don't remember where I was going with this, but your, uh, your grandpa, the market. Market produced delivery, right. Okay. So, so my dad got into organic farming. I don't know if it was late 80s, early 90s. Started a organic onion um, field and he marketed it to Japan actually. Japan, I think, was one of the first early markets that really ate up the, the organic label. What, around what time was this? What year? I think it was, it was early 90s. I was very young. Okay. I, I was born in 89. So yeah, probably early 90s. Okay. Anyways, that opened his eyes to the potential and the growth that this is going to have. Long story short, I think, we, I think we're about probably 75% organic now. And the nitrogen aspect of it is you can't have, it comes from chicken manure. A chicken manure has the highest rate of nitrogen per pound of poop. And for that specific nitrogen number, you find that in chicken manure. If you're chasing a, more of a potassium or phosphate number, then you turn to cattle manure. So an average corn crop, I think, takes 300 pounds of nitrogen to grow. And that essentially converts to 10 ton of chicken manure per acre. Oof. So, so every in spring- the chicken manure business. Year, it's a year long deal. <laughs> every spring for, for, at the beginning of the crop year, we are out fertilizing manure, the, the fields with manure. Right. That's what we do. Is there ever a, a way to like over, put, like put too much nitrogen in the soil? Is that even possible? It's possible. I think you can you can burn a crop up. Um, it's pretty hard to do though. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No. That. Yeah. Just. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. It would be probably pretty hard to do with with something like manure. But you do see accidents happen when when you're putting on uh, synthetic nitrogen. Um, say you you're you got your pump calibrated wrong and you're dumping on a lot of nitrogen onto onto a field. And yeah, you can. It happens where you know those mistakes, and you can see uh, see definitely some some uh, negative impact by too much, like Dallas said, burning up. You know, yeah. What are, What is the signs that you've that you've done that? Oh, just discoloration, um, stunted growth, um, and a lot of times that uh, a lot of times it'll come out of it, but depending on on how bad, yeah, you could potentially ruin a portion of your field if you if you screw up a uh, an application. Okay. Yeah. So as an organic farmer, you were and to maintain an organic label, you were not allowed to use synthetic fertilizer. Right. So that is why we turned to the manure program. Okay. Yep. Yeah. There, I know there's like a, I don't know if it, it's coming from people's distrust of like the government and stuff now, but when it comes to like 
anything you put into your body these days, everybody's like hyper focused on organic and like what what is what is approved by the government, what isn't, is that even trustworthy? But I you like the flip side of that is you see everything's greenwashed now. You go into the grocery store, everything says organic. So what makes it like legit organic? Well, here in Washington State, we have um, the WSDA has an organic program, and they're the ones that certify a grower, and um, they come yearly and do a inspection and also an audit, and make sure you you are maintaining your organic status. You can't have any GMOs um, in your crop. You know, pesticides, obviously. Um, are there alternatives to? normal chemical pesticides and stuff that you can use? What's crazy is the, what would the word be? The ecosystem you create by not, there's good bugs out there too, right? So you can spray for your bad bugs, but then like in a ladybug will eat an aphid. An aphid destroys your potato crop, kills the leaves, then you don't can't absorb sunlight to grow the potato. Well, ladybugs eat aphid. Mm-hmm. And so, or a, gre- a green, a green winged lace leaf, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. will also eat aphid. And when you don't spray, you maintain an ecosystem of good as well. And it can actually balance itself out. We have at times in some organic potato crops flown on those green leafed lace can't even think of the name that that one special bug that will specifically take out yeah. an aphid population. Yeah, him and I had he he mentioned that before because I was watching a podcast with Joe Rogan. He had a I forgot it's in Georgia. I forgot what the guy's name was, but he was talking about there was some beetle or something in South America that they found that did a similar thing where it doesn't damage what you're growing, but it takes out the the pest that's that's bugging it. Yeah, so it's it's fun to it's fun to. You learn a lot. I'm not a hippie by any means, but um, we're just chasing the market. And right, but you do believe absolutely it's yeah. better for you. Absolutely. What are the financial burdens that come with that? Financially, you burn way more diesel. Everyone really? thinks you're saving the earth, farming organic, but there's a reason that chemicals are made, and that is so when your weeds come up, you can just go spray. Mechanical cultivation or hand weeding is really the only way to combat that. Organic farming, I believe that that is the biggest burden and financial um, problem you run into is number one, your manure, I would say, and getting that put together and on, but also the weed control. Yeah, absolutely. So if you wanted to completely like, <laughs> I don't know how to say it, like go green or whatever. Like it basically, if you didn't want to use the mechanical stuff and use that much diesel, you would have to hire a crap ton more people to do the labor. Well, there is a, a herb farm right next to ours at one of our sites. And they literally have a hundred man hoeing crew that works all day, every day of the summer, hand weeding with a hoe. Oof. An herb cannot grow tall enough to shade out the weeds. That's one competitive advantage you can have with certain crops is they will grow tall enough to where you can shade out your weeds and then your weed can't get your weeds can't get sunlight. 
Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Is there, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming because you actually own a, an entity now that, that deals with all this stuff. You're looking at it from not just the, the end, end user, end customer at the grocery store, but you're looking at it from keeping your business alive. Absolutely. So we, we are all mechanical cultivation. We are row crop farmers. And in order to maintain your weed control, you have to probably run your tractor four more times across the field. Wow. Yeah. So it's a give and take. Um, it's much easier just to call the airplane in to come spray or the ground rig. But, and then you just watch a crop grow and then come in and harvest. Is there like a financial benefit to doing it? Well, there is. Yeah, you can hit it off the charts. The problem is maintaining that yield that you can get conventionally. Um, it's not, it's, it's really hard to, to get a conventional yield farming organically. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and we were talking about like just the sheer number of people that we're feeding in the world. And like how do you think it's possible to one day get to where all of it can be organic? You know, I think there's, there's a point where your household mother has to decide if she wants to spend a few extra bucks to give her kids organic milk or organic eggs in the kitchen every day. And with inflation the way it is here in America right now, the, the organic market is actually dropping. Yeah, there's not quite the demand because the mom has to put gas in her car, take her kids to school. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, but I don't know, that's a great question. What usually follows that? Is it like a government subsidy to keep it alive or? No, it is straight wild west. So, I mean, there's no subsidy that that gives a farmer money because they're farming organically. There's not, no. There's state crop insurance based on state crop yields that you can you know, pay for, but it does not cover the extra organic expenses you incur as a farmer that you ultimately have to pay back. Yeah. And I'm sure too, like the amount of harvest that you can get per year or like the dead space where you, uh, you harvested something and now you got a, a, like you don't have anything planted. What do you put in place? How do you time it to where you always have something planted and then you can immediately harvest it and then put something new in there? There's a timing thing with it too, I'm sure. Yeah, and that's where market produce deliver has been my dad's rule that he's taught me from day one is you, you have a plan and you have your crops sold. You know, not, not saying you're gonna have 100% of everything marketed before you plant, but you have a plan. And that way you don't just say, well, I hope the corn market's good at the end of the year. I got 6,000 ton of corn I need to sell. So by strategizing, you know, ahead of time and, and finding your niche market, um, you have you have a plan, and you know if you got if you got um, beans that come off, or say say a first cutting of alfalfa or timothy, you can go plant beans behind it. The one advantage we have here in the in the Columbia Basin is the amount of heat units we get. We can grow two crops in one year. And that's what the processing plants like Kyle works for. They do, they do a lot of green peas and sweet corn. Yeah. 
So you can grow a green pea crop and a sweet corn crop in the same year. Kyle, do you want to talk about a little bit of your your job in particular of what you do? I mean, you're managing a lot of acres. Yeah, no, I can touch on that for a minute. Um, yeah, so we process uh, oh a, a lot of sweet corn. I mean, most of our acres are are tied up with with sweet corn for sure. Then uh, next, uh, green peas, lima beans, and carrots. I primarily deal with uh, the sweet corn. Sweet corn. The last couple of years, I've been been starting to to uh, dabble a little bit in the carrots and and starting to learn that and uh, starting to to uh, manage some of those carrot acres. Uh, but yeah, sweet corn is definitely the um, most most of our acres go to sweet corn. For yeah, sure. and you were saying I think the peas are a good nitrogen producing. Yeah, yeah, too. like Dallas was was. So it was like a good filler in between. Yeah, I know, and yeah, like Dallas was just talking. A lot of our, you call it double crop. So um, a lot of our our contracts will be a, a double crop contract to where, um, you know, peas is a is a pretty um, quick maturing plant. So you have enough enough time in a in a growing season to to put some peas in early in the year and, and get those harvested and, um, and then plant some corn behind it. And then, um, the grower is able to, to, um, what's the word, uh, utilize their acreage better really. I mean, and, uh, make more money on a per acre basis by, by getting a double crop. Right. Um, uh, contract. I know one of the things that uh, people have questioned about, and in, in as far as like nutrients or whatever in our food, like even though you're growing it, how much is it actually is nutritious? And they talk about monocrop ag- agriculture kind of destroying the soil and stuff. But it sounds like, at least in your your position, you, I mean, some of your some of the uh, farms that you deal with are organic, but not all of them. Most of them aren't. Yeah. Um... No, we, we, we definitely do, do um, honestly, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you our, our uh, organic acres, but yeah, definitely uh, conventional outnumbers. Yeah, but it so. sounds like you guys, it's not really monocrop though, like because of the the way in no, order what, to do What the, do you, by like, monocrop, like you, what, you just one one crop per season and- Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah, as a, as a farmer here in the basin, um, I think I could speak for everyone, but these, these contracts that these processing- um, plants come out with for the green pea sweet corn deal like that's that's a great gig not anyone can get them you know they're tightly held and it's just uh, it's a dream come true honestly if you get offered one because you have they're just a cash crop so you plant them um, the company pays for the seed you raise them Kyle's company comes in harvest them with their own combines you plant your corn your sweet corn, you grow the crop, they come in with their combines, harvest it, and then three months later, you get a, a check in the mail. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's so, something I never thought of. You know, like, how is, the, how is all this land managed? And it's really just like, you're leasing your land to these companies to plant. Essentially, yeah. The, yeah. the company is tying you up for the year, and you grow what they want them, what they want you to grow for them. Wow. Yeah, so we we uh, like Dallas said, we choose the variety. Um, we we come up with our planting schedule. We we tell the grower um, when we would 
like them to plant. And um, we obviously work with them uh, as best we can. And obviously um, everyone's busy and everyone's, um, you know, around here people are growing uh, a variety of different crops. And so everyone has a tight schedule. So we, uh, we, we do our best to, to work with their schedule. And honestly, it's um, a pretty good deal because we, we built relationships with our growers over the years. Uh, most are growers we, we deal with on a year to year basis. And um, a lot of them are, are uh, pretty loyal. And um, we, we try to be as loyal as we can be to them. Um, so we, there are some years to where, um, you know, it's maybe more beneficial for the, for the farmer to be planting some, something else instead of sweet corn. And, um, but, you know, most years you aren't really having to get down, you know, get out and knock on doors and trying to find acres. You know, it's, uh, it's um, some years it, it can be like that. And I haven't, I haven't been in this position long, so I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still, uh, still um, a little bit green, but uh yeah, it's it's been good so far, and it's uh, enjoyable. And I think coming from from my background, coming from a farm family, and working on the farm, and um, I definitely relate well, and, and have, and honestly, know personally um, most of the growers that that I'm working with, which makes it really fun. Um, but uh, yeah, where was I going with this? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we're just we're just we're just rambling now. But uh. well, what's fun for me? I'm 33 years old. I think I'm turning 34 soon. Yeah, yeah, I'm turning 34. Uh, Kyle's a couple years younger than me. We we've been friends for a while. But as I've been getting older and growing, and as I've grown up in this um, ag sector, I'm starting to enjoy the relationships with more people my age. Mm. For a while, it was always, you know, the guys that are 50 and 60 years right. old. I'm the young gun that's, you know, doesn't know what he's doing and um, needs direction from my father to get anything done. Now I get to communicate and and sign contracts and, and negotiate with people my age. Right. So it's enjoyable. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I mean, we're the, like, millennial generation. Um, it's... This is something I talk about, and this is in every business. Millennials are the ones that are starting to take over businesses. We're starting to get in those lead roles in, in companies. And it's important that that we work together. Like Oh, absolutely. Like I, things get hard in the world, and it's so easy to talk about how just messed up everything is in the world, but like it's up to our generation to kind of dictate where everything goes because we're the leaders in, in the world. We're the ones signing the contracts. We're the ones taking over the businesses for these older generations that are either retiring or dying. And I'm still a kid at heart. I know Kyle is too. It's, it's really weird. Time just flies by, but um, yeah, it's time to, time to, time to be mature. Yeah. <laughs> time to grow up. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, definitely. And, and no, I, I, uh, I agree with Dallas. It's kind of fun. I mean, you hate, yeah, turning 30 sucks because... Um, everything hurts. And, yeah, everything yeah. hurts. And <laughs> Dallas coming from the, the athlete side of things, he can, he can relate. We can obviously mm -hmm. relate being beating our bodies up and do the military stuff. And, um, but no, it is fun growing older and uh, you know, taking some responsibility. And like Dallas says, starting to, uh, starting to you know, work with people. And... And yeah, it is cool seeing seeing you know younger people step up because that's honestly uh, 
agriculture in general is, uh, I mean, we need the next generation to, to step up. There's, there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's, I mean, fewer and fewer, um, people going, going back to their family farms and, um, and, and carrying on the legacy. And, uh, yeah. So it, uh, yeah, we need, we yeah, definitely need the, the younger generation to, to gain some, some interest in, in ag and, and not just farming. I mean, there's so many opportunities in, in agriculture. I mean, you have, uh, you know. There's other contracting companies that work in the agricultural industry that aren't specifically growing or farming or anything. Oh, well, yeah, there's it's just. all of the other businesses outside of that that are in support of it. Yeah, there's so many businesses that are in. I mean, you look at the uh, chemical fertilizer companies that uh, that service a lot of these farms. The the processors. The um, I can't speak too much on the the uh, tree fruit side of things. I'm not uh, don't have too much knowledge on that. But yeah, I mean, this is also it, just like one portion of yeah. agriculture. There's a whole other world. Yeah, but the, no, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of jobs. I mean, right now we. Uh, I mean, people are, are struggling to, seems like no one wants to work these days. And, um, you know, we, we need, uh, equipment operators. Mm-hmm. We need, uh, we need field representatives. We need, we need sales personnel. We need farmers, you know, it's a, it's a one big team effort, you know, for lack of a better yeah. term. So, so you own your own entity, obviously. Mm-hmm. So do you have people under you that you hire? Or do you just kind of like share uh, employees with with your dad? Yeah, so this year, well, it'd be last year now, I bought my first two tractors. I mean, like I, I spoke earlier, it's just equipment is so expensive, it's nuts. I have never farmed enough acres to build it, even afford or have it make sense for me to buy a tractor. With my dad having all the equipment and men, I just pay him a top dollar custom rate. He comes in does the work for me and it's simple, it's done. The equipment stays moving. I don't have a tractor that covers 500 acres and then just sits the rest of the year. You gotta keep your tractors running to make them pay. Um, so I personally do not have anyone on my pay- payroll right now. What I've been actually doing is just using my equipment um, that I have currently now as of this last year and putting my dad's employees in them. Mm. And then we have a, uh, I guess a balancing equation to make sure he gets funded for that. And then I put the hours on my tractors and the custom rate is much less. Okay. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've mentioned before just trying to, cause I, I look at things from like a macroeconomic geopolitical side, look at the entire landscape of the world and fertilizer being one of the big ones, like most of it or a lot of it comes from like Ukraine. So the things happening in Ukraine, it affects all of agriculture around the world. Do you see that in the organic side as much? Is that kind of... You know, you got your... Well, you got your domestic markets and then you got your export markets. Um, I haven't seen that necessarily here locally in what we grow in the markets we chase. The one, you know, me personally, I'm chasing an organic field corn market. That's what I've kind of expanded my farm on. I can't get a potato contract, just like the processing contracts the fresh vegetables, the potato gig is extremely tight. Like they do not hand those acres out. They're almost generational now. Is that like like a government regulation as to why? No, it's just it's just the processing plant, whether it's Lamb Weston or Simplot. I mean, they they only have so many 
tons they need per year. Mm-hmm. And I guess the amount being eaten, you could say is, has not gone up more. Uh, most of the fry, most potatoes here, I think are grown for McDonald's fries actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think uh, Kyle at some point, like his family's potatoes were growing for five guys. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was, I remember being in, in Jacksonville when we were still uh, active duty and yeah, going into five guys and, and they got a pretty cool deal where um, they have, you know, their uh, potatoes on display and on their, on their uh, whiteboard, they put out the, the grower or the farm where, where that, uh, where those potatoes came from. And yeah, from time to time we'd go in there and, and see uh, our family farm on the, the whiteboard and all yeah. the way in North Carolina, the All complete the way, opposite yeah. side of the country. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was. Yeah, that's that's really cool. cool. I mean, you guys, you know, we're talking about the lack of interest in people wanting to work in this industry or the trade industry and stuff like that. But it's probably things like those where you just have a sense of pride. You know, I, I guess you could probably get disconnected. Just like a lot of city people are disconnected with the agricultural world, the agricultural world can get disconnected from who exactly they're feeding. Oh, you know, yeah. you're putting in all this work and stuff and it's kind of a unrecognized, like no one's saying thank you. You know, you know what I yeah. mean? But something like that, you're like, wow, I'm actually Yeah, no, you definitely uh yeah, coming from from uh farm families and, and just seeing the uh you know, the blood, sweat and tears that have gone into to building these uh farms and yeah, you take a lot of pride in it. And um yeah, I mean, I, I'll always, uh, you know, cherish those days working on the, the family farm and, and maybe, you know, still could be in my future. We'll, we'll see. But, uh, I mean, nonetheless, that uh, you learn so much by, by working on a farm and by, you know, growing up around uh, agriculture and it teaches you uh, life lessons that you, you can't put a price tag on, for sure. Yeah, you were saying you're like a... A jack of all trades. No, yeah, to be a to be a farmer, man, you gotta you gotta be an electrician. You gotta be a plumber. You gotta be a um, hydraulic expert. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you gotta. You, I mean, you you gotta know how to fix things in a pinch and yeah. and uh, and uh, get by in, in tough times and um, yeah, a lot of it's um, take a lot of pride in it, no doubt. Um, this question's more, I guess, for Dallas, but when you decided to do, or, or your dad decided to do organic stuff, was there a, like a moral thing behind it or was it, it's simply just, there was like an emerging market where more people were looking at organic stuff? Yeah, I think, I think when my dad started farming, you know, your operating money was 20%. I mean, today you can get money for, and it's high today, but you can get operating at you know, 7%. But I think for him, it was more just making the few extra dollars on the sales side that intrigued him rather than maybe the health benefits, I would say. Yeah. Do you notice, like, I I feel like whenever I go and I eat organic or I don't eat organic, I, I notice a difference in the flavor of it. It's, I don't know if that translates into like nutritional value. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely say there's something to that. Um, we have a cattle ranch as well. And when we grill 
grill up a steak from one of the cows on the ranch. I mean, I swear, I'm not even being biased. And they're a GAP certified cow. It's not organic certified, um, which means no hormones, no, it's non-GMO, has to eat all non-GMO food. We tried the organic deal on the cattle as well. However, the organic label and market for the cattle gig was simply grass-fed. Everyone that wanted an organic beef wanted it to be grass-fed. Well, you can't put weight on a cow feeding it grass. You need to feed yeah. it corn. Oh, yeah. And when you only feed it grass, there's no fat on a cow. Mm-hmm. Well, the fat is what makes it taste good, right? So we kind of found this gap certified market. And, and so we get to take advantage of, you know, our residue from the crops at the end of harvest or anything that's junk, you know, you can go feed it. And, and for whatever reason, I mean, it, it truly does. And because we're mostly organic, I'm not saying that's why it tastes good, but, um, it sure seems to. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. I was talking to, um, uh, a rancher up in, he's near Glacier National Park up in Montana. And uh, they have some they have some cattle up there. I was asking him like, what's the biggest challenge when it comes to, to you know, the ranching life up here? And he said, when it comes to like crops and stuff like that, he's like, because of the harsh weather here, which you guys don't necessarily deal with too much except the winter gets really, you know, snowy. Um, he was saying you only get like one harvest a year when it comes to like agriculture. He said when it comes to cattle, it's really hard right now because all this push to get the grass, grass fed, grass finished stuff. He's like, but like what you're saying, they're not going to survive the winter. Yeah. They they don't have fat on them whenever you do that. And you're not doing that in Northern Montana. They're not going to survive. So I can't speak to that up, you know, those cattle at high elevation up in the mountains experiencing those those stronger winters but yeah sure i yeah like like Dallas said i can't really speak to that either but uh sure seems like yeah in certain parts of the country you you uh i mean you can't be feeding feeding grass all year long you have to supplement that feed with uh right with grain now, or hay or whatever i know. mean mostly they fatten them up with like grain or corn or something like that right yeah they'll go to a finishing lot when i think you know, they reach 1,100 pounds or something, then they finish them on corn. What is it like? Is it the process or how the digestive process of the cow is like why it's somehow bad to not have grass fed? I don't like if the grain you're giving them is organic or whatever, like where are they, where's the bad part of that process if you're just adding more fat to the meat? I have no idea. That is a great question. Um, I've never sought out a grass label on my Mm -hmm. steak before because I I like flavor. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. My girlfriend and I had bought a half cow um, and it was a grass fed, grass finished cow. We noticed that like the flavor is pretty, pretty good, but it's super tough. Yeah, it is. Like you're just like, Every single cut of meat, you're like you're just chewing it for game. forever. Yeah, it's a, yeah it's a wild, wild game at that point, right? Yeah, um, but it's not like you would think because it's a bigger animal that even though it's not, it's not a ton of fat on it, it has more fat than like an elk or something. Yeah, you would you would think, but I think when you get to compare it to a grain fed beef, yeah. there's you just can't even go back. Yeah, personally, 
and then you look at the price of it at the grocery store. Oh, it's nuts. And that's where it kills you. Yeah. Yeah. I will say though that like buying from an, an actual rancher, like directly from them, it saved us so much money. Yeah. Down in Texas right now, the uh, the ground beef is like 10 bucks a pound. Wow. This is nuts. Like you might find a sale somewhere where you get it for cheaper, but whenever we did it with the this uh this rancher, um it was like four fifty a pound. Basically we got. Yeah. Um ten bucks a pound, is that right? For ground beef, yeah. Oh. For like a organic ground beef. I mean you can get the junk at like Walmart so, and stuff that interesting fact. I believe honestly most your organic ground beef is gonna come from an organic milk cow that stopped producing milk. And so they'll just grind it up and sell it as ground beef. Really? Yeah. Huh. Because, I mean, as a rancher, you're not going to want to grow cattle for ground beef and chase. I mean, I mean, obviously certain parts of the cow go towards ground beef, but I believe the majority of that ground beef, at least the ground beef um, market for the organic label comes from... It comes from an organic dairy. Mm. Those cattle that quit quit milking. Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like, what else do you need that cow for at that point? <laughs> um, okay, well, I mean, do you guys see? Do you guys see yourself? Um, obviously, you, you, do you have kids yet, Dallas? I don't have kids yet. No. Um, ironically, my wife is pregnant. Hopefully this isn't live streamed. We haven't told her. Oh, I was about to say, like, is this the, you're breaking the, breaking the news here? <laughs> yeah, we told my family. We have not told her parents yet. That's this weekend, so. When do you want me to release this episode? Oh, I don't care. I doubt. I mean, whenever. Okay. Matter. Just don't tell them that the episode exists until after you've told the family. <laughs> after you got to edit out all my, <laughs> my stupid comments. Uh, no, we're, so I'm really excited. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, Kyle and his 15 kids over there. Just kidding, he's got two. <laughs> I would imagine you guys want to bring your kids up into the same thing, keep the, the generational thing going. Do you see challenges in, in, I mean, raising kids today and getting them motivated to work in this, this field again when the rest of society is saying, go do tech job, go to college, do tech job, do cybersecurity I think it's fortunate for us being the area we live in because there's so many families and involved in the ag sector that you don't, your kids maybe don't have the city neighbor that, you know, find interest in, I shouldn't say that. I feel like we're in a good spot compared to a lot of people that, that we could- Like-minded individuals. Like-minded, like-moraled, you know, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, that they, there's a, you know, and country's kind of coming back cool now, right? I mean, you got your Yellowstone show, everyone wants to be a cowboy. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah it's funny to see a lot of people like, I got to get out of the city. You know, COVID makes New York City shut down. And so everybody wants to move out and start their own farm. And then they last like a year. It's scary how many folks we have coming from big cities looking to purchase ground in rural America. And it's kind of a, I mean, it's not our favorite deal as a farmer because what happens is property prices go up right. because people start subdividing farms and then taxes also, obviously your property taxes become higher. That's actually a good uh, 
segue into the the tax situation. Like, are there tax benefits, exemptions, or anything for being in agriculture? You know, my dad, he's, I'm going to quote him here, but not to get into politics, but he's always said, you know, I don't know how many more bureaucrats my farm can support. You know, I've, I love the government. We love the government, love the service you guys did. But I think we, the thing that frustrates any business owner, also the, the, the farmer is, you know, capitalism built America, right? Like that is why people came to America is the dream. And to just have it taxed away for the working, from the working man to give the people that want their handout, it's kind of frustrating. Yeah. But I think governmental waste would be another, you know, touchy subject where why am I paying taxes to have someone that wants to have their sex change that's in the military and they need a quarter million dollar surgery? Well, the agricultural world is like struggling. Yeah. Yeah. I was telling Kyle that in California, it was, you know, there would be like some kind of ag, ag exempt, exemption to uh, somebody's farm or something out there, but California would raise the taxes to a point where like, it didn't matter. You're still paying such high taxes that it pushed so many people out. You go through central California right now and like one for sale sign on a farm after the next. Yeah, I think, you know, there's that issue, but also I think the issue of the drought there. Mm -hmm. We are so blessed here with the Columbia River, the irrigation project, Grand Coulee Dam. Um, and water has become the currency of America and a farmer specifically. There's people leaving their farms, their areas because they need water. Do you notice like a climate change thing that is being blasted everywhere? Do you notice that at all? I swear, you know, every time everyone talks about global warming, we have a snowstorm hit or something crazy and it goes the opposite way. Um, well, I know like California just got record rain, yeah, record snow and... Yeah, I'm not a scientist, but I, I, I mean, I personally haven't. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm in the same way. I mean, global warming, I, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, climate change, of course. I mean, climate change is- uh, It's always changing. Yeah, it's always changing. Um, and you're gonna have swings and um, things are gonna fluctuate. So, but uh, yeah, I'm not, not- uh, You're not seeing it on your end, on the ground. It's not affecting you any different than any other change in the climate before you just roll with the punches. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, I, I, I mean, I guess I didn't, it does seem like years ago, like, you know, when we were younger, you had, we, you know, we had some bigger snows out here and, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I don't, as far as how it affects the ag, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, uh, yeah. don't have enough education or, or you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not uh, yeah. knowledgeable on that, I suppose. I think here um, locally, being blessed with irrigation, we get to control our climate, right? So we're just the desert. And when we need water, we go push a button and our circle turns on. So watching the, you know, the, early spring rains to get the wheat started or, or that midsummer rain to keep stuff from burning up in the dry land. 
we get to just push a button. So we're fortunate. Um, and I think that makes us oblivious maybe to any, I guess, climate change that could be happening that we yeah. don't notice. Well, I mean, it's really easy to push this end of the world scenario to someone that's going through a drought. Yeah. You know, I, I can definitely see that. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, if anything, at least in the last couple of years, we've had some real late winters. I mean, last year, Dallas, I'm sure you remember. Um, I mean, we were getting snowfall in, in April, and we were, you know, guys were planting corn and, and potatoes, yeah. And we had, you know, three inches of snow, and, and um, yeah, it was... Uh, bizarre and that uh you know that obviously affects things i mean when you <clears throat> have seed in the ground and you're you have you know so many amount of acres you have to get get planted in a in x amount of time um i mean you have to when the calendar says plant you got to plant you know and uh so yeah weather can can definitely still screw with things over here you know even though we are blessed with uh with fairly consistent weather but uh yeah like an issue we ran into last year um having that late winter we had had seed in the ground had cold temperatures and the seed just sat there for for uh weeks until it germinated and then you have fields that were planted weeks apart all coming at once and you can see how that is a problem come harvest when you right. have to have to um, get stuff off in a timely manner. Only matter. so much equipment, only so many people to Only to so much plant capacity it. and right. um, you can only take so much at one time and yeah. And um, like uh, the, well, and another thing we, you know what we do deal with here um, in some years is extreme heat. Like it can get uh, we can have mm-hmm. 100 plus degree temperatures on, you know, days on end. And when you're growing green peas, that can, they're a finicky crop. And uh, you know, like Dallas is saying, I mean, they, I mean, it's not as risky as growing uh, potatoes, but it, uh, they're, they're fickle. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you get a, you get a few days of, 110 degree weather and, and some 10, 15, 20 mile an hour winds. And that, you know, comes across the county like a blowtorch and it can ruin a pea crop real quick. So that's, uh, yeah, I mean, just, a, you know, it's a risk. Farming's a risk in general. I mean, it's uh, like Dallas said, I mean, it's a uh, farming makes going to Vegas look cheap. I mean, I mean, yeah. you're, you're risking a lot and you're putting putting a lot on the line to uh, feed your family and, and feed the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like the way that you're laying it out, how each farm, they basically have the land and they kind of lease it out to the companies that are planting and harvesting and all that stuff. And then you go to the processor. And Have you ever had a, a, a harvest where you go to the processor and they don't accept it? Yeah, Kyle can speak to this too, but there's, I mean, like last year, I believe it was, um, there were so many crops that became mature at the same time they couldn't all get harvested. So there was farmers that just got their crops bypassed. Yep. That's got to be a kick to the dick. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And that's uh, that's the worst call in the world you got to make to a to a grower and and tell them that uh, hey, there's uh, we can't get to your to your crop in time. We got uh, X amount of acres in front of you, and we've done the sampling, and uh, this stuff is you know looking like D grade. We aren't going to be able to sell it. And um, got to go around you. And yeah, unfortunately, that's just the uh, nature of the beast. Are there any like options for those those people to still use that in some way? Yeah, I think uh, peas. I don't know. Dallas might be able to speak to this better, but you can. You could probably, you know, a lot of that could still go to uh, to feed. You know, to okay. feed cows and um, guys will. I think. Uh, you know, go through there with, you know, like you would a hay crop and, and, uh, swath it and bale it and, um, and still get something out of it. And, and that's, uh, not to say, I mean, there is, you know, in, in a lot of these contracts, um, you get bypassed, you're, you're still getting some money from, from the processor. Um, oh, yeah, there's a bypass, bypass clause and, um, it's, you know, pro- I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know what, what the books are for, for yeah. these growers, but you know, it probably you might be break even. It might be a lot worse. I, you know, yeah. I, hard for me to say, but, uh, so there's a little bit of compensation, but it's, uh, it definitely takes a, it's a, it's a gut punch for sure. Yeah. And it's, uh, obviously that's. That's, I mean, that's farming. That's mm-hmm. uh, the uh, risk that the, the grower takes. And, and um, there's, you know, we, we uh, when those situations arise, that, uh, yeah, like I say, that's, you know, you, that's the worst call ever when you, as a, someone in my position, which uh, fortunately for me, I, you know, I don't deal with peas, but uh, I, I do help out here and there. Um, Corn is not nearly as, as finicky. It's a, a pretty, um, what's the word? Uh, resilient. Resilient crop for the, for the most part, I mm-hmm. mean, compared to other things. So uh, it's very rare that uh, that you see a, a sweet corn crop get, get bypassed or, or something like that. Uh, usually if it does, if, if that happens, it's uh, because of a windstorm that came through and, and literally blew down a standing corn crop to to where it makes it uh non-harvestable and and even that is is very rare because like dallas said a lot of times even if it is uh blown down you can usually still salvage a lot of the crop it'll take a lot longer um but uh yeah yeah so the, the other fun thing to think about from the farming side of things is is the farmer is the only person who buys at retail price and sells at wholesale price, if you think about it. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. So that's where your margin gets very thin as a farmer. And so that's where marketing comes into to being such a big play for making that yeah. few extra dollars. And then, you know, perhaps, you know, a direct to consumer deal. It's, you, it's, you know, just like anything, you cut the middleman out, you can make a, 
a little bit. Yeah, I think they actually kind of addressed that in the Yellowstone show. Oh, is that right? In the last season, uh, because they're starting to like, spoiler alert, I'm not going to give it all away, but they start to kind of like lose the financial stability of the ranch because they're in the business of raising and selling cattle, not beef. Gotcha. Yeah. And so they're like having to figure out a way to like, how do we make money? Like no one's buying cattle and they bring up something like, you know, uh, where they make the beef and they sell directly to consumer or they slaughter the beef and then they make the ground beef and they sell it to them. Like, uh, you know, what's that butcher box or whatever yeah. and, and stuff like that, like that kind of thing where you cut out the middleman, like you're saying. Well, and that's where the internet has played a huge role, mm-hmm. right? Get on Amazon, make your account, have a good little background picture and you know, you can, you can market your own thing and reach a large audience. Mm-hmm. Years ago, you couldn't do that. It's, it takes, it's time consuming though. It's much easier to move the mass amount of tonnage or cattle, you know, you, you need the, the processor plant, you need the big market rather than selling one ear of corn at a time. Yeah. Yeah, because I know there's been like uh, different companies where they'll take the, the produce that's not like aesthetically pleasing that kind of gets rejected and they'll take that and sell it to consumer. Yeah. Yeah, like for the potato gig, you know, there's your potatoes that aren't pretty, won't sell in the grocery store. Shelf, so there's your processor contracts, which go to fries. Then you got your fresh pack potato contracts, which generally, honestly, there's, there's no contract. It's just open market. So it's, it's kind of every man for himself. Mm. Um, but when you have a potato or any vegetable that maybe sells on the grocery store shelf that doesn't aesthetically look as good, you know, you've got your, your soup options or, you know, blend it down into a juice or, you know, different ideas there. Sell it to a vodka company. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Worst case scenario, go feed it to your cattle. Yeah. yeah. Get your liquor license and just start making vodka. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you wanted to talk a little bit about the organic side and kind of like go more in, in depth about what you meant exactly, kind of clean it up a bit. Yeah, so, you know, as far as how the crop year goes from the farmer standpoint, you know, you go spread all your manure, get it plowed in. There's a urea effect, they call it, where your wet or raw chicken manure needs to be captured or put underground by a plow immediately, and that way it doesn't volatilize. So you capture your nitrogen by turning it under quicker. So we're set up to where we basically have to be able to farm a field a day to where we can go spread a field a day. We can plow a field a day. We can plant a field a day. We can harvest a field a day. Um, That's kind of our timeline. Organically, you can't spreadsheet farm. I think the most important thing for any farmer, honestly, is that you got to have your shovel and your shadow in your field every day. You can't, it's, it's not a remote job. You don't get to sit in Hawaii and do your FaceTime with your cornfield and your employee and say, well, looks pretty good. Let's turn the water on. Um, I think that's the most important thing that my dad's taught me and, and how you can really take control of your crop yields and crop health. 
And those characteristics, I believe I developed and my dad developed from organic farming, um, more so than your conventional farming. You can't, because you have to know where your weeds are at more than anything. You don't have seed treat on your seed. You gotta know where your seed's at. Um, you have more potential to rot, to bugs. You have to know where your crop's at. And I think, I think that's from organic farming, that is what translate to, I guess the success of, of my farm personally, through the values my dad has taught me growing up as he chased an organic market. Yeah, and that's probably the rub too, being that involved with it and then having to feed, at least in this country, 350 million people. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, I mean, I know something like corn, there's multiple uses for corn, ethanol, um, you know, all kinds of other if products If your oil market stuff. drops, you know, the corn market drops too. Because the percentage of your corn crop, the country's corn crop goes to ethanol when yeah. fuel prices get high. Yeah. I was actually talking with Kyle about that a little bit, how the, the green energy push and then the oil market, they're actually complementary to each other. Like I have investments in both and both have gone up. Yeah. It's not one or the other. Even though like the Biden administration wants to say green energy, ExxonMobil's made 56 billion in the last couple of years. No, it's it's all tied together. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. You can follow the trends. Do you look at world markets in, in that aspect or do you only keep it kind of local? Do you think, do you look at how other events in the world and politics and stuff around the world is affecting the market here in Washington? I do. I, you know, I, I enjoy, personally, I enjoy playing in the oil market a little bit. Um, I hedge the amount of money I spend on fuel for the year on my tractors is the amount of money I will hedge in the oil market and play the futures, if you will, essentially. That way you're always a happy medium, right? So if your diesel price jumps, but you bought the fuel cheap, you make money, but you're gonna pay more at the, when you get the diesel truck to come out to fill your tank up at the farm shop. So you find that happy medium where you're hedging your bet. Yeah, that's smart. Um, you know, you got the organic deals is very niche. So I think world market wise, you maybe don't see it as much. Um, but absolutely, I, I pay attention. Do you guys have any serious competition with like other companies or other countries like China and stuff like that? I think I remember one year, you know, <laughs> I, I swear... And um, I think there was corn coming in from foreign countries that maybe don't have the organic certification status or strictness that we do here in the States that they were pushing corn into an organic field corn market that was not organic and then therefore dropping the market huge. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think it was coming out of Turkey, if I remember right. It was interesting. I wonder if that's part of the whole greenwashing thing that happened or like there's stuff that it just says organic, but it's not really, or it'll say like all natural and people think that that's organic. Oh yeah. There's so many, yeah, so many tricks to make you feel good. Yeah. Lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> you guys think aliens crop circles? <laughs> I know the circles that are formed on the ground here locally are from irrigation pivots not from aliens <laughs> I can tell you that did uh, 
Kyle, did you, when you got out of the military, what did that transition look like for you? Going from farming to thousand miles an hour deployments, military life, back to farming. What did that look like? Oh, um, yeah, man. Well, it's, uh, I mean, anyone who's, who's done it knows it's, uh, it's tough going, going from that lifestyle back to civilian life. It, uh, I mean, it takes a while to, 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 to transition and to, um, to get in the flow of things for sure. Um, Fortunately for me, I, you know, I, I, I came back to a, a loving, supporting family, good friends, and uh, a job, um, which isn't the case for, for a lot of veterans. Um, a lot of guys get out and, and have no place to go, no one that, that understands them. And uh, so I'm was very blessed in that that aspect that I that I came home to a, a supportive family, uh, supportive friends, and and supportive community. Um, but not to say there wasn't struggles. I mean, yeah, there's there's always uh, struggles there. You know, the main thing is you know you go from this brotherhood you're in with uh, uh, a bunch of like-minded and you know people you can relate to really um people have been through all the same same things you have and seen seen the same things and and you come back to civilian life and and uh it can be hard to to uh to relate to people Mm -hmm. um luckily for me two of my best friends that uh i served with with uh both moved out to to uh, Washington after getting out, and that uh, that helped a ton. Just just having those guys, um, you know, we I got married, you know, within within a couple of years of being out. But that first year, I was out. Me and and two other buddies that I served with, they moved out here and. We rented a house together, and um, we still had that that bond, and uh, and you know someone to talk to. And um, honestly, uh, Dallas here, um, we I mean, I I mean we actually him and my older brother were same grade, same age, growing up, and that's kind of you know growing up. I knew Dallas. We wouldn't say we were you know good friends or anything growing up. But uh, we knew each other. Our families knew each other. Um, you know, small small community out here. Um, but when I got out, you know, I met, uh, got, I guess, reintroduced to, to Dallas at the gym. <coughs> um, we're both, you know, kind of meatheads a little bit. <laughs> you can probably you, tell. You more so than him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but no, I found, you know, great, uh, great friendships out here after getting out Dallas is a big one um similar interests both uh both love uh the outdoors agriculture farming and um um same same beliefs same uh 
same uh, mentality. And um, so just finding finding good friendships, you know, like that was uh, helpful for me. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting how a lot of times people will correlate things like, you know, suicide with how hard their life is and how they use suicide to get away from it. But you guys have like a truly hard life. I mean, this is a hard lifestyle. It's, it's slower, but the work is harder. But yet the suicide rates in these communities are significantly lower than someone who's got a skate job in a city. Yeah. I wonder what that is. Like, I'll tell you one thing right now. Work is therapy. Yeah. Work is therapy. Farm work is therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, that was huge for me uh, getting out. I mean, I won't lie to you and tell you. I mean, there's people that had it way worse than, than I did, than, than we did, you know. Uh, but everyone has their, their demons everyone um, deals with with things and um, everyone's service is different. Um, yeah, getting out for me, yeah, I uh, struggled with certain things, uh, but as soon as I got back on the farm and was working, I remember my grandpa said to me, I was having trouble sleeping, you know, when I got home for a long time. And when I when I first got out, I, I I think I took a few weeks to just uh, decompress, and um, before I got back to work, and and uh, I was having trouble sleeping. And my grandpa said, "Well, sounds like you need to get up, get back on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> you're not working hard enough if you're having trouble sleeping." <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, getting back on the farm, getting getting working, getting your your mind. Um, Thinking about other things, yeah, um, was was huge for me. Yeah, um, it's got to be like a, a purpose thing too. Yeah, like you know, even though you're driving long distances to get from one field to the next or something, you'd think you'd be in your your own head a lot, and that could be a wrong thing. But it's different because you're not on the couch. Yeah, you're you're moving for a reason. Like you're going to a spot to go do some more work, and you have things to do, and your your schedule's packed. Yeah, you know, you're thinking months in advance about things that need to get accomplished, or it's not happening. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, definitely, it's um, huge. Just, just, uh, and that's where where you know some people struggle. They, that's where I, I'm just so blessed that I had something to come back to. A lot of people yeah. don't have that, and um, and uh, yeah, I couldn't uh, couldn't be more thankful that. That I had something to come back to, something to work towards, and and uh, I mean it's just purpose. You mean you know? I mean most yeah. uh, everyone that that gets out, you go from this uh, military career, and you're a hard charging devil dog, and you know wearing the uniform, and and uh, walking the walk, and talking the talk, and you get out, and you're thrown thrown out to civilian life, and you're. Um, it's. I think people just struggle finding purpose, and I think that's yeah. what uh, what uh, really helps is just finding something meaningful, find, finding something that uh, that means something to you, and pursuing it. You know, you you yeah. have to have a purpose, and 
and I, and I still deal with that uh, definitely, you know. I mean, I always, you know, sometimes like, man, I, I could be doing more. I could, you know, and uh, so it's, you know, still, still always a struggle. You always think back and, and look, uh, you know, when we were down in the basement today looking back at old pictures <laughs> and uh, seeing that, that uh, 19-year-old, you know, in-shape dude out there who was, who was uh, doing good things. And you're like, man, like that uh those are the days but uh yeah i think at the end of the day it's just uh finding something meaningful mm-hmm. finding you know finding your purpose and that's, and not uh, afraid to work people want to find their purpose while being lazy yeah sitting from the couch i'm finding my purpose while i'm not doing anything with my life yeah yeah and i think that's for you you know it wasn't just moving out to work on a farm anybody can move to work on a farm whether they do it well or not is a different story but anybody can do that and then say well um, i got my purpose but that'll turn into a job yeah but you have to be willing to work and that's what complements the purpose thing you know exactly you you have a different perspective because you didn't join the military per se but yeah, I, I didn't fight for my country like you guys. I really respect that. Um, but the one thing I see, um, back to the you know the work ethic deal that we're fighting in today's younger age, I, I, I just feel like the American male has been castrated. I feel like social media specifically gives an individual that doesn't have a job to scroll through and think greener, I mean, greener fields. Someone else has a greener lifestyle, right? It's always greener on the other side of the fence. And my life sucks so bad. And they just, I don't know. I feel like, I honestly feel like the social media aspect, I, I really do think it adds to a suicide rate. I do because they think everyone else's lives are better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely a major part of it, you know. Um, and then what the flip side of that too is you'll see people that like try to look at, look at, I'm not wearing makeup. See, I'm normal. Yes. But it's all for clout and like it's this weird narcissistic. Yeah, people are just insecure, I yeah. think. Um, and I think you, you develop confidence in yourself from sweat equity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be on a farm, but it can be in a sport. It could be at the gym, you know, but go physically work at something. Yeah. And you will build self-confidence in yourself and you don't need to try and find someone on social media that you want to be like. Yeah, and you know, it's all a distraction too. You know, like I feel like the only reason that they do in that cuz they're bored. Yeah. Like you guys aren't on social media all the time cuz you're freaking working. I literally have Snapchat as the only thing I have, and I like watching fishing videos when I'm taking a poop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, I, and I like to take long poops. Yeah, it's nice. yeah. Long fishing videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it's, it's, it's weird because there's people, they don't grow up in this lifestyle, but it's somehow appealing to a lot of people and then they get out here and they see what the real work is. And then they're like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I want to. What would you say to somebody that might 
I guess, Kyle, we can talk specifically to maybe vets or whatever that don't know what they're wanting to do. Would you consider this as like a, as a profession that some vets could get into and start doing some good things? Definitely. And um, gosh, I'm not, uh, I know there are programs out there. Like there is, I know for a fact there are, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of people, a lot of good people out there trying to help out the, the uh, veteran community. Yeah. And I know, I mean, like I was saying, you know, work is therapy and giving someone purpose and, and getting them out there and, and working and, and getting their mind off, off, uh, off things. And um, there are a lot of, uh, I, I guess I shouldn't say a lot, I don't know that, but there, there are programs out there that bring veterans onto the farm or onto ranches, get them working, getting them plugged in, Mm-hmm. And um, and just giving them a sense of purpose, giving them some some uh, skills that were, you know, outside, you know, the the skills they developed in in the military. I mean, a lot of there. Are, don't get me wrong. That you, you know, there's a lot of there's so many different military occupations out there, different MOSs, and but uh, I mean, if you're a if you're an infantry guy, you know, that all you know is. Uh, mm-hmm trigger pulling and you come back out and you know you don't want to pursue a career in law enforcement i mean what else do you know right it's you're told go to college get a tech job yeah or some weird liberal arts college is so tough man i mean i got out and um you know i i did take advantage of my my gi bill i did a couple years at uh local community college Mm -hmm. and then um transferred to a, a university and and got an ag degree but like, man, it's it's so tough for for uh, guys coming from from uh, from that background. You know, a lot of guys you you know you get back from Afghanistan and and that uh, high speed lifestyle, and you come back to civilian life, and then you you start school with uh, with eighteen year old kids and it's, not, they're not even paying for school. Their yeah. their parents are, so they're and sleeping in class, and you're trying to just you're pass doing it. Every, yeah, you're doing <laughs> everything you can to not freaking choke them out. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's tough because it's. I mean, guys will start school and and um, and it's just like, man, I can't do this. Like, I yeah. can't. You know, it's like this isn't for me. And but there's uh yeah I would just encourage encourage uh you I mean know. would you would if they wanted to go to college would you encourage getting an, a degree in ag or is it necessary like no oh, definitely I mean it, if you, well yeah college that's a different conversation I you know I mean I went to I probably wouldn't have gone to school if I didn't have my GI bill mm-hmm. I decided to take advantage of that and it. Uh, so far, it's paid the bills a little bit too. It's it's helped me out. Yeah, but there are so many. So other, that helps you as far as like resume building. That's still a thing in this industry. People oh, look for that when they're hiring. They look for the degree. Yeah, when you're talking other aspects of the ag industry, definitely. Okay. I mean, you go yeah. into some of these different positions, and yeah, they're um, a lot of them are still you mm-hmm. know wanting to see a degree. That's it's not a necessarily a deal breaker in a lot of positions, but it'll definitely help you out. Yeah. Um, 
I definitely say my, well, my work experience, um, I don't know which one outweighed the other, but I'd say the, the degree in ag definitely helped me out in getting the position I'm in now. Mm-hmm. But there are, I mean, the trades, I mean, that's huge, yeah. I, I think. you know, I mean, everyone needs running water. Everyone needs electricity. And uh, yeah, you can go get... The schooling some- is way less time. Yep. It's like a year, maybe two years, you know, and then you're almost guaranteed a job as soon as you get out. And then you're almost guaranteed like 80 plus thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Yeah. I, that seems like the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. No I don't kidding. know why people are like you trying get, to roll the dice with working at Twitter or something. Like, yeah. I, no, I, yeah, no, definitely the trades is, uh, I mean, people are, I mean, there's, you're all, as long as we got, running water and electricity, you're going to need, you know, someone to maintain that. Sure. And people are going to pay for, for those services. Um, as far as the ag goes, I would say, even if you didn't grow up on a farm, even if you don't have any, uh, prior experience in agriculture, I mean, everyone's got to start somewhere. Yeah. I mean, if, if you, think you like the the rural lifestyle and and um i mean and you're a, a vet looking you know trying to find something go go do an internship you know with someone i mean there's all sorts of the uh yeah. companies out there you know even even farms you know um go you know see if you like it and if you like it you know pursue it and there's there's so much opportunity in ag right now yeah there's a thing kind of on a I guess macroeconomic level in the world as far as agriculture goes and where different supplies and stuff are coming from everywhere else, all the exports from different countries. Agriculture is expected to boom in the next like decade. Which I don't know if that's really what's gonna happen, but like by most metrics based on like stuff happening in Ukraine and like Turkey and stuff like that. Um, you know, we, we don't know who the next president's going to be, but we can, we can bet that if there is a, maybe a more conservative president that gets in a lot of the, the ag industry is going to have to flex in a different direction. And it's supposed to, it's from what they're saying, it looks like it's supposed to start booming because America is going to have to start taking on a lot of the responsibility yeah. for agriculture in the world. I mean, you got a growing a growing world population and that mm-hmm. population needs to eat. It's a growing world population and there's less countries that are capable of producing as much agriculture as the United States yeah. can. Yeah. Yeah. No, and yeah, like I say, I mean there's a anything in ag is is rewarding it's awesome um whether you're the farmer whether you're ground zero you know or uh or you're part of the the service side and and helping out um i mean it's uh extremely rewarding it a lot of these jobs pay well i mean you're gonna work your tail off no doubt yeah what is the like baseline dude in the field working the the grunt work Roughly, how much are they making? I mean, I know I'm sure that's like well farm here specific. in Washington now. Right. I mean, we have um, Dallas could speak more to this, but recently we've had laws to where now um, your 
your average bottom level field worker is now getting um, overtime and uh, I, I don't even know what our minimum wage is now. Dallas could maybe speak more on that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, we're, we're roughly anywhere from 17 to 21 bucks an hour for our, our hourly wage guys. Um, you got your manager, you know, that oversees everything, obviously on salary pay. Um, That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, you can't, you know, run a farm on 40 hours a week. So what happens is with these new labor laws, um, it becomes very good actually yeah. because we're farming 60 hours a week. Um, we always take Sunday off unless there's something very urgent or um, a processing plant that needs a harvest put in the field or the bin. Um, and so we, we, we take Sundays off, um, but with the labor laws, 17 to 21 with overtime is, is huge on a farm because you're putting in mass hours. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's more than I thought. I was thinking like 12. Yeah, cost of living here, um, thanks to our governor <laughs> and our <laughs> um, our state, I mean, it's it's high. I mean, so, I mean, so minimum wage is high. Yeah, Kyle was saying something about how uh, there's some farms that have invested a lot of money in creating like a housing situation, like a apartment complex or something, but in terms of bringing people from like Mexico or something to come up here and work and then they stay here and then, and then it's seasonal. So then they'll go back and. Yeah. That's, that's typically a, your orchard deal yeah. for your pickers and stuff. You know, we're at the point now where, you know, we got to have the same guys every year because they got the knowledge, the experience, how to run the equipment. I mean, yeah, you're running around in half million dollar tractors. Um, and, you, you got to know what you're doing, right? Yeah. You can't read, you, there's not enough time in the day to retrain new guys every year. So some farms have decided to, you know, they want people working three tens and then two days off three tens and they got two shifts going um, and other creative ideas to, to prevent people from collecting overtime. But we've just decided that, you know, we're just going to pay it and, yeah. and we're going to, we want to keep you on the farm. Well, I'd imagine in the organic market, it's easier to, to justify that because your stuff is usually more pricey anyways. It's easier to justify and the precision farm work that's required for specifically the mechanical cultivation portion of it, you got to have experienced labor. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, makes, that makes sense. I mean, do you, do you see an issue with, I mean, I, I don't know, like, there's a talk about you know, illegal immigration where the only reason they're doing that is because they can pay them less money, but like they still have to get approved to work for a farm. Like there's still a, a vetting process for all that stuff. But like, if that's the case, what is the incentive to hire someone who's not illegal if that was even true? So like we could talk about like getting people like, oh, some, you know, regular people to start working in agriculture, but you coming from your your spot, are you thinking, yeah, well, that's more money? No. Or as most farmers, not necessarily you, but are they thinking like, well, it's more money to hire someone who's not, you know, from Mexico or something like that? Well, again, they're they're one of the the cultures 
um, that want to work, right? Right. They enjoy the the grunt work. It's something that you can do without speaking English, right? It's more show me and I'll do it. Okay, right. Um, you don't know. I mean, people have fake social security numbers all the time. Yeah. So you don't know. Yeah. Um, I think it's just... Uh, well, I mean, in your guys' case too, you guys actually care for your employees. It's not just like this. You don't know that you're not just like pumping people in and out. No. Like you actually have people that you work with for a reason. Yeah. No, yeah. we've we've developed a tight family. Uh, I mean, we farm very thin on employees for the amount of acres. Yeah. My dad farms and me, I guess, as well. Um, but... In the end, it's a big family, and you're, the turnover rate's very small. Yeah, turnover rates. Would uh, we were talking about like veterans coming into this? Would there be some kind of exemption or whatever if you started hiring veterans to work out here? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I don't know if there's a state program or some sort of government funding that would help with that. Because um, I know there's like the uh, what is it? Vets to roughnecks or something like that, or like they get into the oil industry. And they start doing that. I wonder if there's... Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, our farm is still... And every farm and every, you know, is... It, any business is out there to make a profit, right? right? So um, I think there's a point where absolutely I would love to throw vets in the truck, take them around the farm. Hey, there's a coyote. Pull the gun out, shoot it. Right? <laughs> But as far as, I guess, putting the time in and saying it just is so hard because right. I don't know how long these programs last, but to invest the amount of time into people that, you know, think they want to be farmers. I mean. Yeah. It's so hard to. It's hard to vet because it takes time. It does. Yeah. But as far as getting someone out in the fields, yeah. absolutely. That'd be great. Yeah. Man. I don't know how you guys do it. There's so many moving parts to it and so many things that could make it all just. At a young age, my dad, you know, I, Kyle's driven way more equipment than me. I've learned how to do everything. And then my dad really focused me on irrigation. You know, everyone in the ag industry um, has realized that water is your number one input. And so that is your most important piece to crop management is your water. It's the number one thing out of everything you do that goes into your crop. So managing your irrigation is very important. So rather than, you know, I, I've dug spuds for three years. That's probably, you know, the mess, most technical job because you got to have your bruise-free numbers to capture at the plant so that when they go to fry the potato, it doesn't turn brown. So you're mm. not eating brown fries at McDonald's. So by doing that, you have to harvest them very carefully and not bruise them. Um, so that's like a technical job, one of your higher paying jobs for an hourly guy. I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, could you repeat the question? <laughs> I, I got sidetracked. No, I was just, I'm just saying like how. Yeah. So, so at a young mar age, your margins are so. Right. So small. I had to learn from my dad. He taught me this. You have to just essentially jump up to the 30,000 foot view mm -hmm. and not be so focused on your one job. You have to be able to see what's going on everywhere and be thinking three to five days ahead. You know, yeah, I love driving tractor. It's so relaxing, mm -hmm. but you don't know what, what's going on anywhere else. So 
it, there's a fine line of, do you, are you the one physically doing the work yourself or do you, you got You get to a size of a farm where you have to be running around managing and you don't clock in in the morning, but your brain never turns off. So it's, it's interesting, but my dad, you know, he's taught me that. And now I really understand it as my personal farm has grown is you got to be floating around. You got to have that high elevation view, right? You got to be the salesman one day, you know, you got to be the farmer the next, you got to be the welder the following. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Jack of all trades. Um, Kyle, you're all of the property that you manage. Um, do you see an issue later on where like say for, for processing, you know, they're, they're kind of in a sense, a gatekeeper in some regards with who gets what contracts and whatnot. Do you see some farms not being able to make it? Like, I mean, you guys, you know, obviously you're 20,000 something acres, but like it's all individual farms that are doing this stuff. Do you see more of them like falling off because they just can't afford it? Like it's just. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, Whether or not they can afford it, I, that side of things I don't see. The things we look at, I guess, I mean, most our growers, I mean, are phenomenal. They Mm -hmm. know what they're doing. They've been doing it their whole lives. They're third, fourth generation farmers. Um, And we typically deal with the same growers from year to year. I mean, because they're good growers and and they produce. Um, So I just, because I know like, like Dallas was saying that you can't get a potato contract and it's just because like they've already got all the contracts they need for potatoes. Well, that's when it's hard for new growers to come in and start getting contracts because we, you know, it's kind of the honor system. You know, we say we've been dealing with Dallas for, for 10 years. He's a good grower. He usually farms this amount of acres each year. And for someone to come in and come to a processor and want acres, it it's uh, it can be tough because usually they're tied up by other guys. Mm-hmm. Um, you can only, you know, we can only take in so much a year, um, and so for you know someone, you know, for someone to get their foot in the door and that it usually will come come down to you know maybe one year you have a a grower that tells you, hey, I'm gonna be I'm down on my acres this year for. For, uh, whatever reason, they might be wanting to grow some other crops, and yeah. so we uh, we might go out looking to to other growers or, or new growers for for more acres. But yeah, it can definitely be 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 uh, be tough to get yeah. your foot in the door. Because I, I just feel like if they're if you're stuck where you're only able to grow a certain type of crop, and then mm-hmm. the yields on it are all different, and then the amount of money you can make off certain crops is all different. If at some point it becomes too expensive for smaller farms to not get contracts with better, the, the more higher paying crops. And then eventually it just, it just gets too expensive. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, Dallas wants to 
Yeah, I think there's a price point there where when the demand's high enough and the expenses are high enough and you don't have the contracts or the market, then you rent your ground out. Okay. And the rent check, because the, because the demand's high enough for the commodity, then other neighbor farmers or corporate farms mm-hmm. will come in and say, hey, I'll pay you this much for your ground. I'm going to just farm it myself. Yeah. And you just take the rent check. So whenever like stuff like Bill Gates talk about built like buying all this farmland, is that what he's doing? He's basically a corporation just paying a check to the actual farmers in that area? He doesn't actually own the land. He just... Well, he came in and tried to buy a massive amount of ground just last year um, in an area not far from here. I think he's looking at it more as a hedge on a business side, mm. being the ag industry, right? People okay. got to eat. So it's just a hedge for him. Right. Um, I know there's other- At the same time, he's like promoting this like fake meat and all this other yeah. other crap. I mean, yeah. there's conspiracies out there, who knows? Yeah. But I think for him, he's not trying to be a farmer. Yeah, that makes more sense to me that it would be a hedge against something yeah. or exemptions for something. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's, he's, Bill Gates came to uh, Quincy, Washington, which is just 20 miles from us here. And we had, Grant County has always had the cheapest power in the country mm-hmm. from Grand Coulee Dam and the river system and the dams, hydroelectric power. And he came and put a ton of money into Quincy um, building server farms because the power was cheap. Kind of a douche move, but okay. So for him, you know, <laughs> he's a businessman. Yeah. It's cheap. Yeah. It's cheaper that way. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense to me than... But, yeah. um, but I mean, with the... There's like a bad connotation with corporate corporations coming in and doing this very thing where they, but it's, I think, it's keeping the farm alive, but they're not, they're like beholden to that now at well, a certain point, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's tough to say. I think that's what's so special about a family farm mm-hmm. and it's so rare is there is no corporate ladder. There's no bureaucratic ceiling, red tape. It's, it's wild west. Right. And it makes it fun I know that's why Kyle enjoys it as well. We're not stuck in an office all day. We are out outside farming and it's just, there's not that political, Yeah. I don't know, that corporate feeling you get Yeah. or that other, those feelings you get in like a corporate job. Yeah, I just, I always worry about that where it gets so hard for the little guy and then it's so easy for a corporation to just come in because you're just a dollar sign. Yeah. You know? Well, and I mean, people, absolutely. There's more and more farms being sold every day. Yeah. 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 It, it, it pisses me off, but I, I don't see a way to prevent that from happening because it's like the, the issues as to why they can't afford it is so much bigger than just like a local farm. It's like government printing money and making inflation go crazy. Yeah. It's like, it's regulation on food. It's regulation on this and that. And I don't know if there's a way to stop that and prevent it and really get the power back to localizing farming, I guess. I don't know if that's a good way to put it, but. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think that the people that are in control of a local farm and are maybe the next generation need to realize that problem mm-hmm. and say, hey, I'm going to step up and fill my dad's shoes. Yeah. And I'm going to just go tackle this head on for really because he's a patriot for America, right? In a sense, right? So it's it's an intriguing it's an intriguing thought. I don't know. Um, 
I do know that it gets very hard for the small farmer when you have the, you know, the big city people or corporate um, businesses that want to build and expand the city, right? And you're a farm on the outskirts of town and then they're selling stuff by the square foot or yeah. turning it to commercial property and your property taxes are through the roof. Can, uh, is agriculture safe from like eminent domain and stuff like that? Or are they... You know, I need to study up on my um, tax laws and clauses. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Mm. I know there's a, we're a right to farm county. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that we get to benefit from that maintains and um, is for the farmer. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know in like in Texas around Dallas and moving outward, it's growing a lot. Like, Universal Studios is putting a thing in, in Frisco, Texas. And then like just north of that, Disney's putting some new amusement park, but it's all in like what used to be agriculture area. Yeah. So it's like, it's just pushing agriculture out. It means it's just pushing agriculture to other parts of the country. But that growth, it's like, well, if you take that away, where is the agriculture coming from if you're not using that land anymore? Because the land is what was valuable to begin with. Yeah. No, yeah, God's not making any more ground. Yeah. And there's more and more mouths to feed every day. Um, I think technology um, has given us, you know, the, the bigger yields um, per acre that we get to benefit from this, you know, at this time um, in our life than say my dad did when he was a kid. Right. Yeah, you're dead. It, had to put in some work. Yeah. I think, I know the biggest change I think was obviously when it jumped up from what they call real irrigation to center pivot irrigation. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. I could see that. He was showing me how all that works today and I was like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a big deal, especially at the rolling hills because like the water drains. That's how ground was classified originally before circles came out was by how flat it was. Mm -hmm. And that was the, essentially if it was flat ground, it was class one ground. If it was rolly hills, it was class four ground. Then that set the price point. And then circles came out and the, the game changed. Yeah. You could farm anything. That's freaking awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we're just definitely going to have to get creative about things, I think, moving forward. Yeah. I don't know. That's more your realm, obviously, but. Well, we're doing our best. Yeah. Uh, we're working hard, but having fun, mm -hmm. I think. I'm That's not, good. I, I hope you guys always continue to have fun because I don't want you guys to ever be like, screw this because I don't know how to farm. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to come up here and steal all your food. <laughs> so, so, some days I don't think I know how to farm either. <laughs> yeah, well, we're just over two hours now, so we can wrap this up. We're all tired. It's late. <laughs> but uh, I thank you guys for coming on. I thank you guys for what you do. Is there, uh, I mean, you guys are in a totally different industry than another small business, but is there ways that maybe people can contact you if they want to do business or if they, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Keep in contact with you. Maybe if they have ideas about how to help your your farm and yeah. maybe business contacts in other parts of the country to... Well, I just vented about how bad social media was for people's mental health. 
Uh, yeah, but, but if you use it, no, if you, I, you can use it pr- productively. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm joking. Um, I actually don't have social media. Okay. Or any way to contact me? And okay. Well, I mean that's that is how it is. Yeah. That's why I have you on the podcast because like no one hears this side of things. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about how all of this works. This is a, this is all new information for me. You yeah. know, it's I think it's important though that people hear it. Thanks. So. Yeah, well, I'm still learning too. Yeah, How, we're we're still learning. Yeah, definitely. No, it's a learning. Yeah, learning every day. Yep. We're we're still young. We're we, uh, you know, definitely <clears throat> don't uh, don't know everything, and we're yeah, learning every day. And <clears throat> well, yeah. there's there's you know. There's people all over trying to do good things and make the the country a better place. And, uh, you know, whether they have aspirations to go be in politics or if they want to run a business or they just want to work on a farm or something, like people are trying to make it a a better place. But I genuinely believe it's like it's our generation that it's our responsibility to to make the decisions that put the country in the right place and to really look out for each other. Um, So I'll wrap it up here. Thanks for all the listeners who have made it this far. I know it was kind of a fire hydrant of information coming at you, but it's a totally different perspective on the world we live in. I hope you guys found this valuable and you uh, next time you go to the grocery store, you know what all the work that went into getting you your, your food that keeps you alive. So uh, this is the first episode of my road trip here in May. I have one, two, three episodes in Coeur d'Alene, Hayden, Idaho area. And then I'll be going down to Las Vegas and have a couple different episodes down there. So please like, share, subscribe, follow all the, all the stuff, but more importantly, share this podcast with everybody, everybody, you know, that's really the only way that this thing is going to grow. Um, if you would like to somewhere, I don't know exactly how it looks on your end, but somewhere, whenever you go to look up the podcast, there's a, a link on there where you can support the support the channel with a, a nominal donation. If you'd like to do that and keep this podcast alive, I greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Peace.